You're listening to All Over the Place, the official podcast of Media Pub Live, with your hosts, Eric Provoznik, Jim Culver, Marty Zamora, and Christine Leninger. I'm Larry Jaffe. I'm the author of Record Store Day, the most improbable comeback of the 21st century, all over the place, and I love fun sanity. Hello, and welcome back to All Over the Place, the official podcast of Media Pub Live. I'm your host, Eric Provoznik. And we have a condensed uh, condensed co-hosting staff today. We've got Christine. Hey, Jim and Marty, unfortunately, going to be out today, but uh, they're with us in spirit because we've got an awesome, another great music show for you tonight or today or this morning, whenever you're listening to us, folks, here on All Over the Place. We've got a guy who has been on the, the forefront here in the Southwest, the concert scene, going on 50 years. He'll be celebrating his 50th year coming up next year. And for those of us who grew up in Ohio and uh, the Midwest, as a name as ubiquitous here as Belkin Productions and Brass Ring back home for me in the Great Lakes, please welcome to the show, Danny Zalesko. Thanks. Thanks for having me. What's cooking over there today? Well, I mentioned during the intro that you're you're coming up on your 50th anniversary here in the Southwest doing Danny Zalesko Presents in one form or another. And just what keeps you going in this crazy world of rock and roll? You know, um, the calendar, I think, is is the one because, you know, it's kind of like walls. If I see an open space in a wall, I want to put a poster or a picture or something up there. When I see an open date in the calendar, I feel like it's kind of getting lonely and it's going to get jealous of the other dates that are filled up. So, uh, honestly, it really it is the calendar because... Um, you know, you, you look for those open spots where you can book something, and unfortunately, other people tend to come in and book on top of you, or you end up booking on top of yourself. Um, but the fact that there's these groups out there that I've uh, developed relationships with, or, or with their agents, or both, hopefully, um, it, it keeps things going from week to week, and year to year and generation to generation. I mean, it's, this is like the sixth decade. And when I say that, I think to myself, boy, that really sounds like a long time because it is, but in essence, it's just one long day that, you know, makes things happen for tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And all of a sudden you're looking backwards at what you've done. And it's kind of what's happened in this case. And Danny, I wanted to ask you about that, because, of course, you know, you've been doing this since 1974, started out, um, you know, evenings, evening star productions, well, of course, evening, coming full circle. Evening star really didn't start till 77. Um, before that, I, I started with a company in, called Sundown Productions that my dad and a friend and his dad backed me on. And I did my original early shows that with them and, and went out of business quickly. And uh, the evening star thing came up actually in the end of 76, because I was booking shows, uh, newly booking shows at a place called Dooley's over in Tempe. And they didn't want to do a show with Taj Mahal. And I knew Taj Mahal was going to do great. Um, and I said, is it okay if I book it and I'll take the risk? <clears throat> and they said, okay. And that's what started Evening Star. So was that the show that really made you go, wow, I've got something here, you know? Or well, like, not really. I, 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 I always felt and had confidence in myself that I was going to make this work. Although I was shaken a number of times uh -huh. when things didn't happen. And uh, I found myself working in a waterbed store using their phone for long distance calls. Uh, and, and, um, you know, it, it, like anything else, it's just a matter of hanging in there. And fortunately for me, I did, I don't know if it was about tenacity or just, I didn't have anything better to do while I was trying to eke out a living and pay my bills. And, um, one thing led to another and I actually Dooley's was the thing that put me in my first solid role of booking where I actually had a place that I could call these booking agents up and say, I got this 750 capacity room, let's book it. 
And, um, you know, it's, it's so funny. We're talking uh, yesterday. I went through, I'm going through all my stuff right now. And I've got um, all the files from from that time period. And I just went through all of them. And it was a very nice walk down memory lane. Tickets were five bucks. The guarantees were 2000 instead of 20000 <laughs> And uh, really fascinating. But that's really where where Evening Star started out. And music can be such a personal thing, obviously. But what was it in you that made you want to share that love of music, booking all these bands to come in so that people could share in that love with you? When... Um, when I was in high school, which would have been uh, 68 to 72, um, you know, I mean, it was an incredible fertile time for music. Uh, all the stuff that came out in the 60s, and then here we are in 67, 68, I'm graduating from uh, grade school and going into high school, and in 66, 67, 68, I mean, there was the most musical explosion ever in our lives you know i mean after the beatles i mean there was all these other groups following down the same path as them um and uh i started going to concerts in chicago primarily at a place called the auditorium theater which was a beautiful four thousand seat place downtown and i saw everybody there like um emerson lake and palmer sold out two shows and after they'd sold out, they added yes as a special guest. I was fascinated by this move. Um, Pink Floyd played 900 people out of 4,000 people in 1971. I'm thinking to myself, this should have done better. Um, in, the, in that time period is when all my favorite English groups were coming out, as well as American groups, and and uh, there's a group of friends of mine, along with myself, that were crazy about all the new music coming out from Miles Davis and John Coltrane and Pharoah Sanders uh, to Herbie Hancock and all the great jazz groups. And then all the great English bands, the San Francisco bands, the L.A. bands, the Birds and CSNY and the Dead and Quicksilver. You know, I mean, we we were hit with the greatest onslaught of music in my mind in musical history, um, and the the uh, proof in the pudding of that one is every one of those groups is still around in one form or another, unless they're dead, which is also uh, kind of one of the uh, sad things about what we do is this life stuff gets in the way, and we end up losing some really talented people along the way, which is very sad. But the good news is there's a lot of great people, you know, who are still around. Um, but that watching those shows, those early shows, I felt like I wanted to be that guy to come out and talk about upcoming shows, as well as welcoming everybody into this, this nice group of people that are new friends made because they love the same music. And uh, that's called getting people together. And, and that's what always turned me on about it was just the magic of being able to say a name and you get people to pay money to come and sit with you for a night. Really cool. Well, one of our recent guests, uh, Peter Jesperson, uh, his son, Autry, says music is a feeling we don't get from anything else. No argument whatsoever with Autry. Bright kid. I will go a step further, though, and saying that live music is a feeling you don't get from anything else. And with well, that's, that's absolutely true. I mean, it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. They might play the same set night after night, but you have a, you have so many differences. The building, the environment the group is in, uh, the place where the audience is, how you advertise it. Uh, and, and whether or not you get people really pumped and excited before showing. I like to think that we keep people, hopefully, excited, you know, until they get to the show. Uh, so that when they get to the show, it's kind of like a, you know, breathe deep. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like you got, you're there for the big event, you know, what you've been waiting for. That anticipation is what 
makes people crazy, I think. And like going to a Super Bowl. I've never been to a Super Bowl, but if I did, you know, I think it would be a letdown compared to the hype that goes into it, you know, when it starts. With concerts, especially, you know, much anticipated ones, um, when when the big day finally comes, it's it's a real Thanksgiving for everybody. Sure. And you mentioned uh, part of life is death, but now uh, what are your thoughts on uh, technology being able to bring John and George back together with Paul and Ringo with a song like Now and Then and, and technology, how that's helping to bring some uh, some voices that we've lost back to the present? Well, those voices, you know, were always there. The, the problem, as I understand it with it, was because of how they were recorded, and so long ago, it was difficult to bring out what needed to be brought out. But the original recording was there, which is the main thing. Mm-hmm. And 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 if, if I mean, it's just like they came up with digital uh, to replace analog. Um, I like analog recordings. Um, I, I'm I'm pretty good at it. I've I've had little contests around the house where, you know, is it a record or is it a, a CD or is it a stream? Uh, to me, the streams are very flat. Uh, you can you can adjust in your stereo how to make it sound better, but there's nothing like putting on a record. Um, in, no. in the case of the Beatles song, I think it's fantastic that they were able to help finish what was started. You know, there's some naysayers that say, well, there's a reason that never came out. It was, it was on the junk pile. Well, what was on the junk pile 50 or 60 years ago they had no time. They had no ability back then to see the future, visionaries that they were, but nobody has has the ability to see what's going to happen, and nobody knew back then how big the Beatles were going to get. So this is sociological phenomenon we're talking about here. We're not just talking about digital or AI or any of that. Those things helped bring that to us. So for that, I applaud them. I think it's great. So following up on that and continuing with it, what role do you see AI having in what you do, but also like related to the artists, where are we headed? Um, I'm not the visionary that can answer that one. I I really don't know. Um, I'd say there's a lot of, uh, there's going to be a lot of opportunities ahead that we don't know that are going to take some time to develop um, to to work within all the different technologies that have been available up till now. Um, here's a new one. And and uh, you can see already what it did with that one song. But um, I don't know. I, I mean, put it this way. AI isn't going to replace people in seats. AI isn't going to replace people that make music. Maybe AI can make music on its own and teach people how to play it. I don't know. But bottom line is there's no replacement for for a person or people who get together to create music and and make a song and and hopefully, you know, one in 10 million of those get heard by people. Um, it, it It's a big big pool of fish right there that you know whenever you get into this business you're going to be dealing with so i think the the more help you get the better off you know you can be you still got to write the song and and maybe maybe ai can write songs maybe they can write perfect lyrics that people will like remains to be seen how that works so you wrote a book um all excess who in like tell us about the book a little bit but particularly i want to hear about who got you giddy when you met him who got me giddy yeah you know um i'll start with the book uh the book um had had been kind of a thought of mine for for many years i found yesterday going through my stuff notes uh that ended up being a big part of what the book ended up being. And I'm telling you, it was 30 years ago. Um, 
I always, I always thought that I had a very, you know, special kind of a life in the, in the sense that nobody gave me any of this stuff, but my intuition said originally when I was a kid that I, I really enjoyed sports and then I ended up enjoying the people who were the stars of those sports. My brother and I uh, started going to the ballparks and meeting a lot of these guys. And so from a very young age, it wasn't about allowing myself to be giddy. You had to, when you met these people, you had to be cool. Otherwise, they wouldn't want to be around you or they'd walk right by you. You're a goofball. So we would meet the Cubs players and the uh, White Sox players and the hockey players, especially the football players um, at the places they played. And as you got to know them week after week after week of going there like we did, we became friendly with them as opposed to, oh, there's that goofy kid again. Let's run from him. <laughs> um, so so we, we got some grooming before we were 10 of dealing with famous people and, and for lack of a better, better term, I mean like a newfound kind of mature that we probably wouldn't have gotten anywhere else. Um, I mean, we were all raised good and everything like that, but nobody in the early sixties, not in my neighborhood anyway, was prepared to be hanging around with Dick Butkus. And, and we were, you know, I mean, we, Everybody from the 60s, we were there. Um, and, and concerts weren't really my thing back then, but um, they soon became my thing after hearing the Beatles for the first time and, and, and everything that followed there. Um, and and uh, so I, I was a sports guy and a jack guy. Um, I, loved, I loved doing both. I loved being interested in both. And, uh, but that's... Um, that's kind of, you know, as far as being giddy, I, I'll tell you when I was giddy this one time, I didn't meet Brian Ferry because he was like the coolest guy ever from when I was a kid. And and then when I, uh, we did a show with him in Vegas, I think about 10 years ago, and uh, me and my partner up in Vegas had a fantastic meal with him after the show, and uh, he couldn't have been sweeter. I mean, what a, what a nice guy and what a genius. But... There, there's been a, a bunch of people that I was apprehensive about meeting. Um, but for the most part, everybody is as cool as their music, you know, and, and it's it's a real pleasure to to find that out and actually get to know them over the years so that when you're doing shows together, you both look forward to it. That's it, awesome. it really yeah. it, it, it really, you know, it really makes it fun this last weekend. Uh, we had Frankie Valley here at Gamage completely sold out. I've been doing Frankie Valley shows for 40 years, but the bulk of them, the, the majority of the shows I've done with them have been in the last 10 years. I wish I had another 10 or 20 years. I wish I could go back and get those years because we really do have a great time just being around each other, him knowing I'm there and, and, and me knowing that he's going to do a great show is a big deal. For example, you know, um, a lot of people, I see people get giddy all the time around the stars. And, and the fact is, is they're not used to it. I mean, it's, it's such a big deal for people. And I like that. That's, that's what keeps this business going is people who love stars. And that comfortability, comfortability that uh, in the show, I've been here, what, 70 years now, seeing a lot of shows of celebrity you're always out there introducing, and there's just such a good rapport with the audience. And what, what's that like for you as a promoter, being able to have that same affability with the artists that you do with the people who come to see the shows? Well, like you know, I was saying before, there was a guy in Chicago called Howard Stein that that did that. Um, uh, and he, I don't know what I don't know what happened to him, or but I think he promoted through the '70s. And then I don't know what happened to him, but I came across a guy called Bill Graham, um, who was promoting the San Francisco Fillmore East and uh, West, and also in New York Fillmore East. And 
you know, back then we didn't have the availability of information the way we do now. So magazines would come out or something would come out in the newspaper. You'd hear from somebody about all the magic happening in these two venues and, and the combinations of the stars that he was putting together that were very unlikely, like, you know, having Miles Davis open for the Grateful Dead, for example. I mean, what a great way to turn kids onto legends, you know, and, and fantastic music. I loved all that. And I loved that about Bill Graham. And uh, within a couple of years of that, I ended up meeting him. I was drawn to Berkeley right after I got out of high school in 72. And I, I walked onto an equipment truck and started unloading gear, ended up meeting him, took a little bit of a berating from him for doing it, but we <laughs> ended up becoming friends. And eventually within the next 15 years, we were partners on the Grateful Dead. Pretty cool. So well, what's been the know, coolest I mean, combo that you've put together? Because I think back the the, uh, the the most disparate opening to headlining act was Cool and the Gang opening for Van Halen. You mentioned Miles Davis going before the Grateful Dead. What's been the, the coolest combo or a couple of the coolest combos you've put together? Um, I had the Ramones open for the Kinks. I like that one. Nice. Um I had the Runaways open for the Ramones in a Dooley's one time. Tickets were four bucks. Uh, <laughs> what else? What else? Uh, um, days gone by, folks. Days was, gone by. What happened? No, no. Yeah. We were oh, just days gone by. Sighing uh, about the ticket there, prices. <laughs> there was, there was, there was, uh, there was stuff. Um, uh, shows with John Prine, with Bonnie Raitt. John Prine and Steve Goodman, John Prine and Arlo Guthrie. I love those shows. Um, fantastic things. Um, what, I didn't finish on one, one point before about with, with the book, but COVID came around and, and everybody here was, we were all looking for something to do in the office because I, I didn't want to send people home and, well, we'll call you when it's time to open up again. Everybody stayed on. Uh, the entire time, even though we didn't get to do shows for a good 18 months, maybe more. Um, so we started gathering all the photographs and um, I started putting together the chapters. But actually that had all started prior uh, to COVID. I was uh, sitting sitting home one night watching Shark Tank and on came this guy who claimed he could help you write your book. And I thought, well, it seems okay. He wanted, and on TV he quoted 40 grand to do this. So I thought I'd call him up just to see what 40 grand would get you. Um, and it, we ended up making a deal and he got me started and um, I learned a few tricks and secrets that are very obvious to anybody that wants to write a book. And, um, I followed most of them. Then they, what delayed it for the longest time was I wanted to have pictures inside of the stories instead of having like a photo section like they have in many books. Don't you hate it when you're reading a book and you got to go look in the photo section to see if somebody's there that you're reading about? <laughs> I mean, I want to know what that person looks like while I'm reading the story about them. So I get an idea of, who the guy's dealing with here. So we ended up with somewhere in the vicinity between six and 700 pictures in the book. And, and I could have done double that many. I could do double that many stories, but I did take out a lot of the stories. I, I decided, you know, it, it would have been a great opportunity for me to really do a number on some people who I felt have wronged me over the years. There's not that many, but there's some really terrible stories of things that happened that would end up making people who I otherwise like not look good. So I went through the book and I took out at least a hundred pages of, of stuff that would not reflect well on people or even maybe how I handled it at the time. Um, so uh, it, it turned out to be a very pleasant book. It's kind of like the comedian who doesn't swear. That's how I felt about myself when I did the book. I, I swore a few times in it, but I, I, I didn't, you know, pick on anybody at their expense, even those that deserve it still to this day. 
and, and maybe that maybe that book will come out sometime. And I know media wise, people will be a hell of a lot more interested than than in a bunch of fun stories. Um, but this was a self-publishing exercise, which is one of the hardest things I've ever done. And as well as all the people here around me that had to work on it, it, it was plenty of ups and downs. And, you know, we printed it here in town. Uh, we did everything ourselves. I didn't have a publisher and uh, it ended up doing okay. We sold a few thousand copies. Um, it's still on Amazon and, and people still ask me about it all the time. I, I would love to put it out again and maybe tweak some of the things and add a couple of more current things and, you know, but only if I had a proper book deal. It, it, it's like they make you imagine an artist who makes music and he has to go out and promote himself. Well, that's what most groups have to do today, yeah. you know, because they don't have agents, they don't have record companies and they're looking for a fan base. And, um, it, same thing with writing a book. You've got to do everything yourself. You've got to get your own interviews. Uh, I mean, forget about trying to stock it in stores. Can you imagine? Um, but I would, I would just, I always look at airports when I'm walking by going, wonder if they picked up the book yet, but uh, <laughs> it's not there. Um, anyway, it was fun doing it. And, and people seem to really, uh, people seem to really enjoy it. Well, I'm glad you brought up that uh, self-promotion stuff with the artists and because well, growing up when I did, and I'm so used to bands, you went on the road. That's how you, that's how you made your bones. And that's how you, you got known you, and, and you just build up an audience that way. Nowadays with technology, you, you don't need to do that as much. You can go on YouTube and there's so many social media things. And if we learned anything over the, during that, that pandemic time, you can do a concert from wherever for your fans. But now that things are opening up, I mean, where do you see the brunt of promotion going? Do you still see the tried and tested going on the road? Or is there somewhere in the middle between social media and actually getting out there and slogging through the through the trenches? No matter um, no matter what you do, it's a lot of work. Um, everybody has a different way of doing it. For instance, a lot of people can't afford to just drop everything and go on the road. Uh, whether they're a solo act <clears throat> or or a band, um, you know the 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 fact is there are so many ways to get in front of people, but the problem is there's so many ways for the people to be distracted doing so many other things. I mean, if I post something that has a video on it, for instance, I'm you know and. I have a lot of friends and there's a lot of people who look at stuff that I do. I get like three hits because <laughs> people don't stop and look at videos. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't get people on social media in the first five or six words, you're lost. So here, listen to my new song. It's great. Next. Nobody listens. So the same thing is still going on today that was going on 50 years ago. You got to hear from somebody else. This is fantastic. You got to hear somebody on the radio saying, here's the best new song that's come out in a year. Check it out and you crank it up and you be the judge. That's how we used to find out about radio. Free radio, the kind that's in your car, is still the best way to get to people because it's free and you all, you're always driving. And all you got to do is turn it on and it's there or it isn't. The problem is radio today is so afraid to play anything interesting whatsoever across the dial other than stuff that's proven. And, and how did that get proven? It had to get a chance somewhere. But, you know, artists who are like, say, over 50, 60 years old today, they're in their musical prime, their creative prime. And most of them are sick and tired of trying because radio, even though they're playing their old songs, won't play anything new by them and tell people. I mean, wouldn't you love it if, for instance, uh, Stevie Nicks said she's not going to put out any more new music. I don't know if that was just in a fit of a temper thing or or she meant it, but I don't think she has since she said it. And she said, what's the point 
of me going out and, and all that money and all that time and all that effort, passion, and, and then you, you put it out and it's not Rhiannon. You know, it's not Landslide. And, and, but it's great new music. She did an album with Dave Stewart that was fantastic. Nobody's heard it. And it was released. I don't know, it was maybe six, eight, ten years ago. Oh, the 24 so karat that's gold. just one example. Huh? The 24 karat gold, I think that was the last thing she put out. Then that was just a re reintroducing or bringing back some old songs and, and just finally getting them out. Yeah, that's the last thing she's in. So the crew said been... the same thing. It, it's just difficult to get new stuff heard. But that, that's why I like streamers that can have basically, that's turned into the radio station for me to hear new things. Yeah, you know, it, I, I'm afraid, though, that I, I, I hope I'm not indicative of everybody in my age group, but um, I, I, have, I I'm not sitting there looking at my phone all day and, and waiting for somebody to tell me that I don't know that something's fantastic. I need to hear it from a friend or a trusted source. Yeah. Um, and, and, and even then, I mean, how many times are, I mean, these days you hear more about a new TV show than you hear about a new band. Um, you know, it's like, what's the next Yellowstone, you know? Um, but you know, it, it, it's a difficult thing. The bottom line is, yeah, you've, uh, hold on here. The bottom line is you've got to, uh, get out there and play. You've got to be in front of people. You've got to have a great live show. And the only way you're going to get a great live show is by playing in front of people, maybe five or 10 people at a time, you know, but, uh, and that's the way most people started. I remember having Pearl Jam with 40 people in the audience. I mean, that's the way it goes. People don't realize that, but I mean, the Beatles played to 10 people. Pink Floyd played to the 900 I talked about. It, it's a very difficult business, especially if you have a problem with rejection. <laughs> I was rejected for five years before I got shows. People who put on, who make music, it's like you're either not talking to the right people or you suck and you ought to get another job. That's There's two sides of, of looking at that. And, and I'm afraid there's been, probably been along the way a lot of people who are very, very good that deserve to be heard and seen that just couldn't last it out because they never, uh, you know, they never got past go. And, and just because you can make good music doesn't make you a marketing wizard, nor should it make you that way. And, and that's why there's that old expression uh, about commerce and music meeting and not being good bedfellows. They're, they're as opposite as, um things can be i mean you're not supposed to make money to make music excuse me make music to make money um and, nor should you make money to make music either uh you know like through the ai thing well i want to be a musician i think i'll plug into ai and see if they'll write me a great song and here's the topics i want them to write about you know i mean is that a good thing or a bad thing i don't know um Bottom line is, is, is that to your question, get out and play live and find out if you've got it. Um, I used to try singing in a group when I was in high school and, and we did a battle of the bands at a roller skating party in our gym in our high school. And this other group blew us off the stage. And I realized right then, I just said, this ain't going to work for me. It might be fun, might be co cool to try it out, but. I realized I was never going to be a pro at it. I, I just wasn't good enough. I was never going to be as good as this other band. So that's why I went this way. I, I There wasn't a lot of people wanting to promote shows. There was a lot more people wanting to be lead singers, you know. Well, like you and, and like Joe Walsh, I'm, I'm an analog man. So, But, but, I, but I, I'm also a realist and know that, you know, there are alternate ways to do things now. But like you said, Live is where you where you where you meet the you either put put up or shut up, and people are not going to see it if you don't have a good good way to connect with them. And connecting with them live is it doesn't get any better. You know, when I see shows, when I when I watch the first notes that somebody plays um, at a concert, and I see the reaction, um, 
hold on. They're wanting to increase my storage size here. Um, when I see a band hit the stage and I see the reaction from people, you know, it, it, it always just blows my mind that these people can plug in and sound like that and do that to people in a group that they've never met before. It's, it's magic. And, and, um, it's a good thing. I mean, if I was to have kids again today, I, I would definitely encourage music, you know, that or learn how to kick a field goal. You know what I mean? <laughs> or sing high like Steve Perry. Well, you, you got a last name I mean, similar to mine, Zalesko Provosnik. Yeah, we're, we're, we're made to be kickers in the NFL. Yeah, yeah definitely. I, I, I wish I had learned how to do that back then. I mean, that's, you know, there's those certain things that are just those great moments, like that guy in the Cardinals who kicked the field goal yesterday with no time left. You get to be the hero, you know, and not to mention you get paid really well to do that when they know you that way. That or like Adam Sandler saying, you're the lonesome kicker. There's there's no no middle with that one. One in one in the extreme to the next. That's right. Half the people love you, half the people hate you. Well, <laughs> yesterday, but there's more than half that loved them. There you go. <laughs> right. So speak- it was at home. So I know you do a lot of, uh, um, you know, legacy acts and those acts that are getting older. What bands would you resurrect or would hope to get back together to have them go on tour? I think I already did it. You know, (laughs) you know, there, there's a a lot of reasons why I focus, um, on on the legacy acts, as you call them. I I just call them acts, but sure. Um, yeah, really, I, I, I feel like we're all part of this this stream of consciousness that began back with the Beatles or with prior to that with the, the great rockers of the 50s and even going further back to Frank Sinatra or Cole Porter and all these people. I hear all these names all the time today when when I'm doing either new acts or acts that have been around for some years. Um the the problem with you know uh, with the music business from my end today is is because of business because of money I'm pretty much prevented from playing with all the groups or a lot of the groups that um, I worked with starting in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s when we were all kids um, and. You know, it, it's been a great ride, and, and I truly love working with the bands who I've been working with all this time. So it's not like I woke up one day and said, I'm going to focus on guys over 60. We all became 60 and 70 together. Yeah. So we're we're just still going down the road together. That's, that's how that works. Um, unfortunately, I mean, I'm not going to go. Th- this is like one of those chapters from the book that I didn't print. And I'm not going to really get into it here either, but there's probably about 50 to 60 percent, putting it mildly, of all the headline acts you see in places that I'm not doing. I did here the first time and maybe the first half dozen times they performed here, you know, providing them the road or the highway to, you know, to play in front of a lot of people. That's not just for me, by the way. I mean, they definitely helped by writing and performing some great music and, and getting fans behind them. But at the time when they came out, I helped them get those fans wherever I promoted them. And part of, part of the Bible in this business is you go with who brought you. In other words, uh, if you were part of the plan or part of the action when nobody else would participate, you tend to end up working with these people forever. I mean, there's a lot of these bands that I'm doing now that I've been working with for 30, 40 years. And and I love those relationships and those, you know, people like me being around and people like them being around make it possible for us all to continue what we started doing together so many years ago. So we're just getting old together is all it is. It's like uh, um, 
uh, for instance, I, I just booked a guy called Taj Ferrant over at the Rhythm Room on February 3rd and 4th. He's 14 years old and he's from Australia and he's got millions and millions of views. Um, and the Rhythm Room, what a perfect place. We're very happy about it. I mean, that's where I met and first did Joe Bonamassa. And he was probably right around the same age in the same room when it happened. And um, I'm happy to, to be working, you know, with him. The thing, you know, is about today is unless you're already popular or, or broken or marketable, the big companies don't care and they don't want to be around it. It's too much work. So... I'm used to doing this, and when I get the opportunity with somebody unknown or brand new, as long as they can get here um, and, and afford to play for cheap ticket prices uh, like they should when they first come out, I'm, I'm your guy. I'm here for it. But as far as the regular business goes, yeah, you know, most, uh, most of the stuff that we're working with has been around for a while. And um, the nice thing about that is, Mostly really, really cool shows. Uh, they go smoothly. They're professionals. They've had a lot of practice at it. We all know what we're doing. And as long as everybody, you know, uh, performs whatever it is they're supposed to be doing in this uh, show, we end up having great shows. The audience, which is the most important people, has a great time. And, um, you know, we get to do it again the next day. Hey, Jim's in the house. Hey, hey, how you guys doing? Fantastic. Uh, another of our co-hosts, Danny. Uh, Danny Zalesko, Jim Culver. Good to meet you, Danny. <laughs> how you doing, Jim? Good. Pleasure. And uh, Dave, uh, to what you were just talking about with uh, the acts that you, know, you give a leg up at the beginning, and one of the things I love about going over celebrities, just seeing all the artifacts down there, I'm a, music has just been a part of me and for as long as I can remember, just the history of music and seeing set lists up there from Guns N' Roses when they played Celebrity or pictures of Van Halen when they played it. Who are some of the acts that, you know, you, you mentioned you, you give that little head start to. Who are some of the ones that, that blossomed that you, you were most proud to say, you know what, I knew them when kind of thing? Pretty much everybody you're going to see. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> I mean, you know, well, pick names. Um um, I did Pink's first shows here. Um, Guns N' Roses, you just mentioned. Scorpions, Van Halen, um, Iron Maiden. Not Alice Cooper, he was way before me. Um, but I, you know, read, read through a list of whoever is coming and you know, I, I was there. I mean, it, what happened was when I started doing Dooley's in the 70s and all these groups were coming up, I had the police there. I had Pat Benatar there for five bucks. Police were five bucks. Talking Heads, they were expensive. They were six bucks. Oh. <laughs> right? These, these, were the, these were the first, their first plays in the market. Well, David did, Burns' suits are extra big, so he needed that little extra. So, who's that? David Burns' suits, a little bit more material for his his clothes, so he needed to charge the extra buck. An extra dollar for the shoulder yeah, pads. Go. Yeah, there you go. Gotta pay that tailor a little yeah, extra. I'm 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 very happy to say that just about everybody here in Vegas, uh, Tucson, uh, Albuquerque, um, we were instrumental in. Just about everybody. Well, I, I love hearing that. And thank, thank you for doing all that. Just as someone, again, I've been here for seven years and coming from LA, which has such a vibrant music scene, coming out here, it's, I don't know, I, maybe, maybe not just as vibrant, but I'm able to see so many shows here. And like I mentioned at the top of the show, it, your name is ubiquitous all over this region. I love it. So thank you for that. Another well, thing I want to thank you, you know, about is uh, you brought up Alice Cooper. And uh, the, the Christmas pudding shows, which for those who have never been to one, uh, it starts out with just Alice Cooper's School of, uh, School of Rock. And they, uh, they, they put on the, the up-and-comers. They, they have the kids who come into 
his his uh, his, his uh, the buildings, and uh, you're 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 showcasing up and coming rock and roll. So thank you for doing that. And then just uh, how fun has that been for you through the years of being able to introduce new music and then have acts like Alice Cooper come out there and perform as well? Well, you know, I, I can't take any credit whatsoever for how that show comes together other than the fact that Cheryl and Alice and I um, started with that, I think it's over 20 years ago, at the at the celebrity this is really their concept um over the years i i've made a few recommendations of some bands that maybe we could get the bigger names to come and perform but alice and cheryl are and so it's called solid rock solid rock um, that's good yeah, solid rock thank you solid rock um uh has done a great job in in um getting these events together uh from from doing the Proof is in the pudding, which gets somebody uh, unknown here in here in town to win win a competition and be a part of the show. But all all those different things with the pudding, uh, I don't know if you know or not, but it was called that because that was Cheryl's uh, term, which was um, she um, she said, "Well, we're going to do." a dance group and we're going to do a solo group and we're going to do a hard rock group and we're going to do a comedian. You know, it's kind of like a pudding. And one thing led to another. We asked Mark Tarbell from the restaurant here if he would make pudding for for the audience. And every year he makes 2,500 puddings for single serve puddings for the entire audience. So that's that's how Christmas pudding came about. But uh, I, I met Alice. Walk. I walked into his dressing room in 1973 in Tucson. I didn't know him, and here we are over 50 years later, and still best pals. He's a, he's a terrific guy. Well, what, what do you think would uh, surprise Alice's fans most about him? I ask as a fan, and I because I I'm curious about that question. You know, I'll tell you what. There's been so many books. And and he's been around so long, and he he's been a he's been an open book for anybody who wants to know. Um, I mean, if I if I told you he loves cars and he likes to play golf and he goes to church and he he's trying to help out the community with Solid Rock, these are all things that everybody already knows. So you wouldn't be surprised about it. But instead instead of being surprised, think of it as like. It's what he does, and and he allows people uh, on the outside to know this kind of stuff because he doesn't have any other agendas. It, maybe that's the surprise. He doesn't have other agendas. I think I have a harder time imagining. Very, he's a very regular guy, and then but then he puts on the makeup and he puts out the clothes and he goes out and does vaudeville. You know, it's it's it's, yeah. it's incredible what he does, and and I'm not going to say at his age because again, as long as he's walking and talking and moving, he'll be performing. I think I have a harder time imagining him on a golf course than in church, but maybe that's me. You'd have a hard time <laughs> with him on a golf course if you were betting him because he'd take your money from you. <laughs> <laughs> No doubt. <laughs> and he would. <laughs> now, I know we, we've talked about throughout, throughout this conversation. We, uh, the ticket prices has been brought up. What, what, like Growing up, what, $5, $6. When I started going, I, I look back on my, my first Van Halen show at Joe Lewis Arena, which I believe was a brass ring production. Um, $16.50, and I think it was a $1.50 service fee. So $15 ticket, $16.50. And I don't want to begrudge anybody making money, but at the same time, you've got the fan, the, the or average ordinary fan to, to paraphrase Mr. Joe Walsh a little bit again. Um, and, and bands like Kid Rock and ZZ Top a few years ago, they fought to keep ticket prices down. Now you've got Springsteen who seems to have no problem with the inflation of prices. Where do we find some kind of middle ground so that you know the, the average fan can still continue to see See someone that they want to go. We don't. 
What else you got? <laughs> hey, don't have the dough. You don't get to go. I'll, All right. I'll, 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 I'll expand on that for you. When, when anybody brings up the topic of ticket prices for concerts, I encourage you to make a list next to that of what everything else used to cost in 1980. Sure. Concert business gets the short end of the stick in this conversation all the time. Do you know what I just paid to go to a World Series game at, at uh, oh, JC? Oh, I can't even imagine. I look at the ticket I had from the 84 series in Detroit and what they go for now. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. All right. So the point is, and, and it, it's not even necessary to say the amount, the point is, as long as people keep paying for the tickets, people are going to keep charging what they're charging. I, I don't believe it either. I don't understand why everybody goes on sale six uh, six months or a year in advance. I think that's that's probably one of the one of the worst things uh, of, that I'm seeing presently happening um, because I, I wonder how people are doing it. Where did all this money come from? You know, it's like I, you know, I do maybe, I do about 120, 130 shows a year. There's a lot of other shows that are out there playing, and a lot of them going on sale way in advance, and and for more money than ever if you want to be in those great seats. By the same token, for most of those concerts, you get in for a fairly reasonable amount of money. Uh, you're just not going to be down in front. And everybody wants to be down in front. But, uh, I mean, it, it's not unusual to see tickets upgraded and, and upcharged from being pretty heavy on the face value to begin with. The main thing that I would encourage people to do is to make sure if you're into concerts or into certain people in particular, you're a fan of so many groups, like a real fan, don't want to miss them when they come to town. Keep in touch with their web pages and, and, and notice when they're going to come out and pay attention if you're really interested in a live appearance and make sure that you go to the proper website to buy your tickets. Because if you look up Celebrity Theater or Talking Stick Resort or anywhere, you're going to find a hundred other people selling tickets trying to make you think that that's the reason that's the real outlet to buy the tickets and what's going to happen is you're going to get overcharged i can't tell you how often i see people making posts oh i just heard about this show i'd love to go see him but i can't pay 500 and i answer them every time i see him and say you're looking at a scalper site don't go there you know because you're going to get screwed and god forbid anything happens and the show gets canceled try getting your money back you know, from a scalper. Don't go to these guys, ticket brokers, or whatever they're affectionately called now. Oh, they're man. scalpers. They mm -hmm. want they want to take our hard work and charge more for it. You know, you know why tickets have, you know, especially the great seats down in front, the driving reason why they're so expensive is because if the group doesn't charge for them when they know the audience, there's a percentage of the audience out there that will pay basically anything to have those great seats. They go, well, why shouldn't we do that? If that's what the market will bear, why are we letting Joe Schmo down the street buy our $75 tickets and sell them for 400 bucks? You know, we don't want to charge that kind of money. We really don't. Um, but unfortunately, one of the one of the causes of the inflation in this area is for that very reason. It's not because somebody says, oh, I'm already worth a hundred million. I want to be worth two hundred million after this tour. That isn't the case at all. But if 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 you're if you're selling a product, in this case we're selling talent, we're selling an evening, an event, and 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 you can get triple, five times, ten times more than you feel like you should charge what are you going to do you know and and that's that's really what 
what the long and short of it is. Those tickets don't have to be that much. And and the fact is, yeah, and, and most people don't pay that much for tickets. Most people do it the normal way. I'm very happy with the way the business has been here. When I first started doing shows in the 70s here, this was such a shit kicker market. Nobody was, you know, I mean, a lot of the big groups didn't come through here. It wasn't, it was viewed as like Flagstaff, nothing against Flagstaff, but that size of the city, mm-hmm. a tertiary market. And now it's right up there with everybody else. Everybody plays here. And, and it had a lot to do with those 70s and 80s and 90s when we got to do all the concerts here. And I like to think we did a good job of, of really helping create this market into a musical force, which it, you know, which it still is. And, and, and the fun part of it is, for me, in a way, is knowing that everybody at Live Nation uh, over at the Marquee and at the Crescent Ballroom, all of them used to work for me. That's who I'm competing with. <laughs> I thought they learned too well. <laughs> but uh, That's the mark I, of a good I, leader, though, right? You know, I, but I, I, I wish them all well, and I'm glad to see uh, I'm glad to see that they're doing as good as they're doing. I really am. Well, I definitely want to thank you, Danny, again for you know going on the, into your 50th year and everything that you just mentioned, uh, making helping make this tertiary market a primary market. And I, I, I love being able to see all the bands that I want to see. And if I if they're not here, I just make a quick trip down to Tucson. Big deal. That's no no worries whatsoever. So thank you for establishing that. Thank you for keeping it going here in the Phoenix and, and just all over the Southwest, keeping things rocking for us. I appreciate it. Um, by the way, uh, some of the um, some of the things that I've been working on that are coming up are are not necessarily of the vintage ilk. Uh, I, I just booked a couple of dates with Orianti. Do you guys know her? No, I do not. Orianti is uh, the uh, guitar player that played with Alice Cooper and Michael Jackson. She was with them for several years, so she's coming in February. Uh, who is the other one I'm working on? Lucas Nelson. Um, I do know that name. And and his dad, Willie. We're about to announce a, a show with him. And that's why I know that name. There it is. And, and he's the youngest 90-year-old I've ever met. Uh, <laughs> Certain things else? help keep you young, apparently. We won't say what. Yeah, We don't need there, to. There, There's a lot of really good music coming down the pike here next year. I'm really looking Looking forward to it. For a minute there, I was going, God, are there going to be a lot of shows next year? The answer is yes. There's going to be a lot of good stuff. Awesome. Looking forward to all right of on. So once again, folks, Danny Zalesko, thank you for joining us here on All Over the Place. You can get Danny's book, All Excess, Occupation Concert Promoter, at Amazon. Or try, try to find it you know, in one of those markets so that Danny can walk by and say, hey, they got it in here finally. <laughs> I wish it was there. You know, and... and uh, I don't know if you guys have seen or not, but uh, the, the people at the airport that put stuff up to try to keep people entertained while they're waiting for planes that are often too late, um, they put up a whole uh, display in Terminal 3 of a bunch of my artifacts, which you might like to check out sometime. It's at, it's at the area where you wait for people when they get off the plane on the second level. Terminal 3, Sky Harbor Airport. Folks, now's the time to be visiting. It's a lot warmer here than it is in a lot of parts of the country. Check it out in Terminal 3. What else? Oh, one other. Um, on November 28th, they're dedicating a booth at White Castle to me. Uh, nice. There, wow. there's, a new, there's a new White Castle going up in Tempe. And uh, they've been, they've been, it's like eight months behind schedule now. <laughs> but we're... Uh, we're going to put some stuff in there too. Parking back to Chicago again. I love it. I was born and raised there and my folks are from Forest Park. So that's awesome. That's fun. <laughs> all right. Well, Dan, again, thanks for joining us here on all over the place and, and look, looking forward to 2024 and beyond. Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. You've been listening to All Over the Place, the official podcast of Media Pub Live. If you like what you've been listening to, 
and you know you have, be sure to share it with friends and family, social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, wherever. Content contained herein have been the opinions of the hosts, the producer, and the guests only. You have listened at your own risk.